Welcome to my podcast. My name is Joseph LaFleur. I'm a psychotherapist in Washington, D.C. and a certified Daring Way facilitator. I hope you enjoy. Thanks again. Today, I'm going to talk about unwanted identities. Unwanted identities are the major causes of shame, anxiety, and depression. An unwanted identity can range from a multitude of things. From a man who keeps hidden his interest in pottery, to a man who has not come out as gay to others or even himself. Unwanted identities are the foundation of negative scripts that thrive in our heads causing us to feel really bad about ourselves. Through my work with men, these negative scripts include some of the following categories. Intelligence, success or lack thereof, masculinity, identity in relationships, sexual orientation, sexual identity, body image and physical health, work and money, sexual performance, and most often, how do other people view me? Examples of negative scripts are, I feel weak or stupid. Am I masculine enough? I hate my job. I feel like a fraud. Should I be making more money? What is my value anyway? Is my anger showing? Why can't I succeed in a relationship? Is this relationship the best one for me? Or can I do better? What if I'm gay or bisexual? I would be judged. I'm gay and out, but why do I still feel lonely and isolated? I was sexually abused or assaulted. What would people think if they found out? And of course, everyday common phrases just add to the scripts. Phrases like, you sissy, or you're gay. You're a bit weak in the knees. Suck it up. You can handle it. Just get it done. Who do you think you are? Put your hands down. Watch how you walk. Getting a little thin up there, I see. Have another drink. Don't be such a wuss. Why aren't you married yet? You're not getting weak on me, are you? Those phrases and many others are often identified by men that keep them from exposing their true identities, their authenticity. Those phrases are shame triggers that feed our negative scripts and keep hidden many unwanted identities. An unwanted identity is a shame feeder. They are in direct contradiction to our idealized selves. An idealized self is a made-up self with impossible ideals that we truly believe we can obtain. Basically, they're our own version of Superman. Our idealized self is impossible to obtain and undermine who we are. It keeps us from embracing our unwanted identities that make us unique and whole. Hurtful stereotypes keep us quiet. They keep us feeling small, isolated, lonely. They keep us feeling unworthy of things we truly value and long for. Basically, they keep us from being happy. Who makes the decision that an identity is unwanted? Where do they come from? Who decides they are undesirable in our minds? Unfortunately, the way we view ourselves and the stereotypes we run from, more often than not, come from our families. The most powerful message about who we are or who we should be come from our family and people present in our lives while growing up. This also includes our friends, teachers, coaches, 
clergy, and other important people in our lives who help shape our thinking. Most families have identities they value. They also send a clear message on what is shameful, unacceptable, and unworthy. And we are especially susceptible if we own one of these identities. In such a perfectionistic society we live in, it is impossible to escape these idealized identities. We thrive for and focus on what we should be, rather than putting the energy into who we actually are. These messages and attacks against our true identities are generations in the making. And sometimes it takes generations to undo, unless they are addressed and owned. I do not believe families are malicious in their attempts to ward off unwanted identities. Their intentions are good. They are just coming from a place of scarcity. A belief that these identities are not enough and if owned, failure is looming. These identities, if owned, are considered weakness and defenses are developed internally to ward them off. As we grow older, we see the bigger picture. We intuitively seek out and gravitate toward love interests, friends, work colleagues, and other support networks who embrace the same beliefs about our unwanted identities. These relationships may not be comfortable, but they are familiar, and familiarity is what most of us are drawn to, unless we have the courage to step out and explore other ways of looking at things. As adults, we continue to live and struggle with these unwanted identities. These negative narratives or stories that are on autoplay, controlling and determining what we do and say. Sometimes they are unconscious, other times they are in the forefront of our minds. The feeling that occurs as a result of hiding our stories is what we call shame. It's not the most popular term to use, but it is just that. This feeling, shame, can be the most debilitating of all emotions we encounter, oftentimes leading to anxiety, depression, and anger, and more times than not internalize and directed toward ourselves. And for others, anger is directed toward others in hostile and criticizing ways leading to relationship problems. Shame is the perception of how we see ourselves through other people's eyes. What do other people think about me? Or, I don't want others to think of me in this way. We develop negative narratives about ourselves, and they are debilitating. We develop these stories about ourselves from our family early on in life, most oftentimes before the age of eight, and they can last a lifetime. The messages we hear about ourselves from our families and others are so powerful, and when we adopt them, we become really brutal with ourselves and others. We stay clear of others we identify as having the same traits of our own unwanted identity instead of embracing them and using them as support. We judge them like we judge ourselves. We can end up doing regretful and brutal things just to distance ourselves from our own identities. The Case Study, The Pigeon Coop Tommy was about seven years old. He grew up in the Deep South and grew up with several sisters and his parents. During his childhood, he was tortured by the other boys at school and in his neighborhood. He was constantly under attack, being called names like Sissy or Mama's Boy. The other boys were rough, and they scared Tommy. 
When he was forced to play sports, he was always picked last on the team. He was a short, skinny kid, not very athletic at all. He felt so much shame about being called a sissy. He felt different from all the other boys. He felt like he didn't belong and was constantly reminded of that with all the teasing and name-calling. Even his favorite teacher, a nun, had chastised him one day for playing with the girls. She told him to go play with the boys. And things weren't much better at family gatherings. His older male cousins and uncles would tease him also. The word sissy came up a lot. That word was like a sharp knife being driven into his gut each time, and it lived there. He lived with constant cutting sensations in his stomach. He lived under constant scrutiny and feared the next humiliating attack about how he didn't live up to being a boy. Even his grandmother seemed to notice his less-than-manly ways. Although he did love his grandmother, she was constantly remarking on his effeminate behavior and his sensitive ways. She did remark on several occasions that his older sister, a tomboy, should have been the boy in the family, and that he should have been the girl. He did wonder at times if life would be easier if he was a girl. He knew it was true. He was a sissy. He much preferred the games his sisters would play. He enjoyed playing with their Barbie dolls. Of course, oftentimes they would not allow him to play very long. The themes he liked to play were too rough for them. While they liked playing dress-up and weddings, he much preferred disaster themes like car wrecks and house burnings, someone almost dying and a hero coming to save the day. Tommy needed a hero himself. He would often escape into his mind. He learned early on in his life to make it through the day with an imaginary world he created for himself. Unlike the men and boys around him, he did not like hunting, fishing, playing sports, or watching football on TV. He was pretty good at swimming and skateboarding. Unfortunately, there were no swim teams, and his mother had absolutely no confidence in him skateboarding, so she did not allow him to have a skateboard. She said he would break his arm and it was more trouble than it was worth. Tommy lived a couple of blocks from his grandparents, and he would visit them often. His grandfather did tease him some. He would often wrap his fingers around Tommy's biceps and tease him about his scrawny arms. He did have tiny biceps and hardly any muscles. He was a scrawny kid, short for his age. He always knew his grandfather was being playful and his grandfather usually followed up by giving him candy or cookies or some other snack. He liked hanging around his grandfather. His grandfather had a pigeon coop, and that was the most exciting thing about visiting his grandfather. His grandfather raised pigeons. Some were to eat, and some were called homing pigeons. The idea that a pigeon could fly miles away to someone else with a message attached to his body just fascinated Tommy. He couldn't wait until he grew up and raised pigeons of his own. He would be able to attach messages to his pigeons and have them fly miles away, sending messages to friends when he made some, or to others, or maybe even to God, if his pigeon could fly high enough. Tommy really loved being in the pigeon coop. Tommy did like the smell of the pigeon coop. It was because of the pigeon feed, he realized one day. He liked the smell. One day, not realizing his grandfather was watching, 
He took some of the feed and put it in his mouth and tasted it. He quickly spat it out. His grandfather laughed. He was shocked that his grandfather was watching him. He didn't realize he was being watched. But he was also relieved that his grandfather thought it was funny. He thought he might have gotten in trouble. One day, Tommy's grandfather showed him a pigeon egg, and it was hatching. Tommy was delighted. He couldn't wait to see the newborn squab. It was during summer vacation, so there was no school. Tommy would eagerly go each day to see the progression of the hatching. After several days, the little squab hatched. It was now nesting with its mother. Its mother was a beautiful white hen. The other pigeons in the pigeon coop were blue and gray, and they all looked alike. What color will the pigeon be? Tommy asked his grandfather. Probably white, with blue tip wings, his grandfather replied. Tommy got really excited and couldn't contain himself anymore. Can he be my pigeon, Papa? Tommy asked his grandfather. His grandfather smiled and replied, Yes, he can be your pigeon, Tommy. Shocked, not only by his grandfather's answer, but that he actually mustered up the courage to ask his grandfather for the pigeon. Tommy was so excited, and he was so proud. He knew how much the pigeons meant to his grandfather. It was a real gift. Wow, my very own pigeon, Tommy thought to himself. What would his sisters think? What would the other boys think? He finally had something to brag about. And it was a man-thing, his very own pigeon. Finally, a man-thing he really liked. It wasn't rough or scary. He felt comfortable with the pigeons and inside the pigeon coop. He was totally on board with that. Throughout that summer, Tommy lived in the pigeon coop. He was amazed at how fast his little squab grew. He learned to hold the pigeon, unlike the other pigeons in the pigeon coop. They were a bit wild. Only his grandfather could catch the other pigeons. They were too quick for Tommy, but Tommy tried. When he did, he would stir up the whole bunch. The entire coop would go wild. Tommy didn't mind the commotion. He found it exciting, but his grandfather didn't. Tommy would stop and just figured that old people wanted peace. They didn't like to stir things up. Tommy's pigeon grew into a pretty white bird with blue tip wings just like his grandfather had predicted. Tommy really loved his bird. When it was a squab, he loved to have it sit on his fingertips, even if just for a few seconds until it flew away. As the pigeon grew older and heavier, Tommy loved to have the pigeon nest on his arm. He loved the pressure of the bird pushing off of his arm and flying away. One day, as Tommy's pigeon was sitting on his arm, He saw out of the corner of his eye a rustling about, some sort of commotion near his grandfather. As not to scare his pigeon sitting on his arm, he turned slowly and looked toward the noise. He saw his grandfather twisting a pigeon around with his hand. The pigeon was frantically flipping about, and then it suddenly stopped. What are you doing, Pawpaw? Tommy asked his grandfather. I am preparing the pigeon for a meal, his grandfather said. Huh? Tommy was confused. His grandfather then explained that when you want to eat pigeons, you have to kill them. 
and the way to kill him was to wring their necks. Tommy was horrified. He looked at his grandfather, then looked slowly down at his pigeon, then looked back up at his grandfather. His grandfather chuckled. Don't worry, Tommy. Only men do this, not little boys like you. In an instant, Tommy's horror suddenly turned to rage. He was triggered, and the word sissy came flooding back to the forefront of his mind. Oh no, he thought. All summer I have been free of that word sissy, and I'm not about to go back to that again. Instinctively and quite desperately, he grabbed his pigeon by its head and began to tussle it about. Tommy closed his eyes and saw red. I am not a sissy. I am a man. The memory of his cousins teasing him came flooding back. All the memories of the boys at school teasing him and calling him names, being picked last in sports, even memories of his grandfather making fun of his scrawny arms. I'll show you what these scrawny arms can do, he thought, as he tussled the bird back and forth. As he did, in his rage, he could feel the wingtips of the birds thrashing about, rubbing against his thighs, the claw of the bird on his arms. It made him even angrier, and the more he thought about it, the more he tussled his bird about. In that moment, he felt power. He felt control. He was a man, and no one was going to tease him again. Tommy, his grandfather said loud and stern. Tommy suddenly snapped out of it. Stunned, he slowly looked up toward his grandfather. Nauseous by his own rage, he just stood there with his lifeless pigeon hanging from his hands. He looked up at his grandfather, and his grandfather stared back. He could not make out what his grandfather's stare meant. Give me your pigeon, his grandfather said. Tommy slowly handed his dead pigeon to his grandfather. His grandfather said, let's get out of here. The pigeons are too stirred up now. Tommy ashamed followed his grandfather out of the pigeon coop. When asked, Tommy does not have many more memories about the pigeon coop that day, nor does he have many more memories about the pigeon coop. He does not recall any conversation about what he had done to his pigeon with his grandfather, or anyone else for that matter. In 30 seconds, his life had changed from a little boy with a pigeon he loved and took so much pride in to a boy who had murdered his pigeon in a fit of rage and desperation. His grandfather died about a year later, and when his grandfather died, so did the pigeon coop. By middle school, he was able to make friends and graduate high school with honors. Occasionally, the memory of his pet pigeon still haunts him to this day. While in therapy, the memory of the pigeon and the pigeon coop surfaced. During therapy, he had to deal with many unwanted identities, He now embraces one unwanted identity, and the other he is aware of. A sissy, he says. I'll own being a sissy, but not with the negative connotations. I was just a little effeminate boy who was sensitive and caring. I didn't like roughhousing because I was so tiny and weak compared to the other boys. I wasn't athletic, but I was smart. I just didn't have many outlets to explore my interests and desires. I felt so different from the other boys, and later I realized I was gay. I couldn't identify with anyone. 
I didn't know anyone else who was like me. I was born into an environment that had little to offer a boy like me, and no adults to understand my needs. All I kept hearing was that I was bad. I didn't belong. My authenticity was not enough. I was not enough. I was terrified. I wanted nothing to do with that sissy identity. It meant and resulted in both physical and emotional pain. I could not embrace my true self. It was too dangerous, and the danger was real. Having to hide myself in order to survive cost me dearly. Once I was in a safe place and surrounded by safe people, I was able to embrace my sexual orientation and develop support networks. During therapy, Tommy had to deal with his rage. His anger in those early childhood years had stockpiled. By the age of seven, his anger could kill something that meant so much to him and that he held so dear. In therapy, integrating his unwanted identities and associated feelings of abuse and anger was something he had to own and come to terms with. In doing so, he learned to forgive himself and others. He was able to set free the shame and humiliation of what he had done to his pigeon. He learned to set appropriate boundaries with families and others not able to embrace his sexual orientation. He learned to assert his feelings instead of stockpiling them. In doing so, it assured him that although capable, he would never again have to engage in such rageful behavior. Brene Brown, an expert and leading researcher on shame, reveals in her books that the antidote to shame is empathy. But in order to get to empathy, we must allow ourselves to be vulnerable, and that takes courage. Allowing ourselves to recognize and understand our shame and the shame triggers surrounding unwanted identities takes courage and curiosity. Despite what many people believe, vulnerability is a strength, not a weakness. Ironically, those who practice vulnerability soon learn that embracing unwanted identities is far more fulfilling. The truths discovered in being vulnerable actually make things better not worse as we were brought up to believe. Vulnerability, in fact, can free us from overwhelming stories that cause confusion, anxiety, fear, depression, and judgment. For it is better to know that we are being judged, or more often not, than the belief that everyone is judging us and the entire world is such a hostile place. It also gives us the opportunity to find support. Those who may be experiencing or have experienced the same kind of internal conflicts. This, of course, is not as easy as it sounds. It usually means stepping outside of our existing relationships and support systems. Vulnerability is something that cannot be done alone. The practice of vulnerability does require others and oftentimes professionals like psychotherapists and counselors, especially if we believe we don't have people in our lives that we can trust to explore these unwanted identities. Building trust with someone is essential, and many men find that they have few, if any, someones in their life to be vulnerable with. Building those kinds of connections must be learned and can be very frightening. Seeking help from professionals can provide experiences and building blocks to begin practicing vulnerability. 
Most therapists are equipped with the skills and knowledge to understand you and where you are coming from. They can model trusting relationships and help you find the support systems you need. The most important takeaway is that allowing oneself to be vulnerable and to explore their unwanted identities and shame triggers is not a weakness. Being vulnerable is not a weakness. It takes courage. It, in fact, is a courageous act. Living in fear, anxiety, depression, and shame can be helped by fostering connections with others who are willing to allow us to be vulnerable and to open up about our unwanted identities. Living in blame, judgment, fear, and disconnection can lead to a lonely existence or chaotic relationships. We can create change, but we can't do it alone. It does require us reaching out to others we can trust, or professionals. If you are living in depression, anxiety, or shame, you are probably dealing with an unwanted identity. A certain belief about yourself you find troubling. One thing is certain. Doing nothing yields nothing. To continue doing what you have been doing to create change will only create more of the same. And for those of us who are waiting until the right time, or waiting until we are ready, ready usually never comes. So instead of waiting for ready, just go ahead and reach out anyway. Thank you for listening to my podcast. This is Joseph LaFleur. I'm a psychotherapist in Washington, D.C. For more information about myself and my services, please visit my website, districtcounseling.com. Thanks again. Have a great day.